Chapter 12 Sub Umbra Alarum Tuarum, Jehovah Fama Fraternitatis in Algamina und General Reformation Castle, Vessel, 1514, Conclusion The next day I went to Garamond Press. Number one, Via Sincero Renato, opened into a dusty passage, from which you could glimpse a courtyard and a rope-maker's shop. To the right was an elevator that looked like something out of an industrial archaeology exhibit. When I tried to take it, it shuddered, jerked, as if unable to make up its mind to ascend, so prudently I got out and climbed two flights of dusty, almost circular wooden stairs. I later learned that Mr. Garamond loved this building because it reminded him of a publishing house in Paris. A metal plate on the landing said Garamond Press, and an open door led to a lobby with no switchboard or receptionist of any kind. But you couldn't go in without being seen from a little outer office, and I was immediately confronted by a person, probably female, of indeterminate age and a height that could euphemistically be called below average. She accosted me in a foreign language that was somehow familiar. Then I realized it was Italian, an Italian almost completely lacking in vowels. When I asked for Belbo, she led me down a corridor to an office in the back. Belbo welcomed me cordially. So, you are a serious person. Come in. He had me sit opposite his desk, which was old, like everything else, and piled high with manuscripts, as were the shelves on the walls. I hope Gudrun didn't frighten you, he said. Gudrun, that uh, signora? Signorina. Her name isn't really Gudrun. We call her that because of her Nibelung look and because her speech is vaguely Teutonic. She wants to say everything quickly, so she saves time by leaving out the vowels. But she has a sense of justitia equatrix. When she types, she skips consonants. What does she do here? Everything, unfortunately. In every publishing house there is one person who is indispensable, the only one who can find things in the mess that he or she creates. At least when a manuscript is lost, you know whose fault it is. She loses manuscripts, too? Publishers are always losing manuscripts. I think sometimes that's their main activity. But a scapegoat is always necessary, don't you agree? My only complaint is that she doesn't lose the ones I'd like to see lost. Contretemps, these, and what the good Bacon called the advancement of learning. How do they get lost? He spread his arms. Forgive me, but that is a stupid question. If we knew how they got lost, they wouldn't get lost. Logical, I said. But look, the Garamond books I see here and there seem very carefully made, and you have an impressive catalogue. Is it all done here? How many of you are there? There's a room for the production staff across the hall. Next door is my colleague, Diot Levy. But he does the reference books, the big projects, works that take forever to produce and have a long sales life. I do the university editions. It's not really that much work. Naturally, I get involved with some of the books, but as a rule we have nothing to worry about editorially, academically, or financially. Publications of an institute or conference proceedings under the aegis of a university. If the author's a beginner, his professor writes the preface. The author corrects the proofs, checks the quotations and footnotes, and receives no royalties. The book is adopted as a textbook, a few thousand copies are sold in a few years, and our expenses are covered. No surprises, no red ink. What do you do, then? A lot of things. For example, we publish some books at our own expense, usually translations of prestige authors, to add tone to the catalogue. And then there are the manuscripts that just turn up, left at the door. Rarely publishable, but they all have to be read. You never can tell. 
Do you like it? Like it? It's the only thing I know how to do well. We were interrupted by a man in his forties wearing a jacket a few sizes too big, with wispy light hair that fell over thick blonde eyebrows. He spoke softly as if he were instructing a child. I'm sick of this taxpayer's vadimikum. The whole thing needs to be rewritten and I don't feel like it. Am I intruding? This is Diotalevi, Belbo said, introducing us. Oh, you're here to look at that Templar thing, poor man. Listen, Jacopo, I thought of a good one. Urban planning for gypsies. Great, Belbo said admiringly. I have one, too. Aztec equitation. Excellent. But would that go with Poteosection or the Adinata? We'll have to see, Belbo said. He rummaged in his drawer and took out some sheets of paper. Poteosection. He looked at me, saw my bewilderment. Poteosection, as everybody knows, of course, is the art of slicing soup. No, no, he said to Dio Talevi. It's not a department, it's a subject like mechanical avunculogratulation or pilocatabasis. They all fall under the heading of tetrapyloctomy. What's tetra, I asked? The art of splitting a hair four ways. This is the department of useless techniques. Mechanical avunculogratulation, for example, is how to build machines for greeting uncles. We're not sure, though, if pilocatabasis belongs, since it's the art of being saved by a hair. Somehow that doesn't seem completely useless. All right, gentlemen, I said, I give up. What are you two talking about? Well, Theo Talevi and I are planning a reform in higher education, a school of comparative irrelevance, where useless or impossible courses are given. The school's aim is to turn out scholars capable of endlessly increasing the number of unnecessary subjects. And how many departments are there? Four so far, but that may be enough for the whole syllabus. The tetrapyloctomy department has a preparatory function. Its purpose is to inculcate a sense of irrelevance. Another important department is adinata, or impossibilia, like urban planning for gypsies. The essence of the discipline is the comprehension of the underlying reasons for a thing's absurdity. We have courses in Morse syntax, the history of Antarctic agriculture, the history of Easter Island painting, contemporary Sumerian literature, Montessori grading, Assyrio-Babylonian philately, the technology of the wheel in pre-Columbian empires, and the phonetics of the silent film. How about crowd psychology in the Sahara? Wonderful, Belbo said. Dio Talevi nodded. You should join us. The kid's got talent, eh, Jacopo? Yes, I saw that right away. Last night he construed some moronic arguments with great skill. But let's continue. What did we put in the oxymoronics department? I can't find my notes. Dio Talevi took a slip of paper from his pocket and regarded me with friendly condescension. In oxymoronics, as the name implies, what matters is self-contradiction. That's why I think it's the place for urban planning for gypsies. No, Belbo said, only if it were nomadic urban planning. The Adinata concern empirical impossibilities. Oxymoronics deal with contradictions in terms. Maybe. But what courses did we put in oxymoronics? Oh, yes, here we are. Tradition and Revolution, Democratic Oligarchy, Parmenidean Dynamics, Heraclitean Statistics, Spartan Sybaritics, Tautological Dialectics, Boolean Aristic. I couldn't resist throwing in, how about a grammar of solecisms? Excellent, they both said, making a note. One problem, I said. What? If the public gets wind of this, people will show up with manuscripts. The boy's sharp, Jacopo. Dio Talevi said. 
Unwittingly, we've drawn up a real prospectus for scholarship. We've shown the necessity of the impossible. Therefore, mum's the word. But I have to go now. Where? Belbo asked. It's Friday afternoon. Jesus Christ, Belbo said, then turned to me. Across the street are a few houses where Orthodox Jews live. You know, black hats, beards, earlocks. There aren't many of them in Milan. This is Friday, and the Sabbath begins at sundown, so in the afternoon they start preparing in the apartment across the way, polishing the candlesticks, cooking the food, setting everything up so they won't have to light any fires tomorrow. They even leave the TV on all night, picking a channel in advance. Anyway, Dio Televi here has a pair of binoculars. He spies on them with delight, pretending he's on the other side of the street. Why? I asked. Our Dio Televi thinks he's Jewish. What do you mean, thinks? Dio Televi said, annoyed. I am Jewish. Do you have anything against that, Kasabin? Of course not. Dio Televi is not Jewish, Belbo said firmly. No, and what about my name? Just like Grazia Dio, or Dio Siacante. A traditional Jewish name, a ghetto name, like Shalom Aleichem. Dio Televi is a good luck name given to foundlings by city officials. Your grandfather was a foundling. A Jewish foundling? Dio Talevi, you have pink skin, you're practically an albino. There are albino rabbits, why not albino Jews? Dio Talevi, a person can't just decide to be a Jew the way he might decide to be a stamp collector or a Jehovah's Witness. Jews are born. Admit it, you're a Gentile like the rest of us. I'm circumcised? Come on, lots of people are circumcised for reasons of hygiene. All you need is a doctor with a knife. How old were you when you were circumcised? Let's not nitpick. No, let's Jews nitpick. Nobody can prove my father wasn't Jewish. Of course not, he was a foundling. He could have been anything, the heir to the throne of Byzantium or a Habsburg bastard. He was found near the Portico d'Ottavia, in the ghetto in Rome. But your grandmother wasn't Jewish, and Jewish descent is supposed to be matrilineal. And skipping registry reasons, and municipal ledgers can also be read beyond the letter, there are reasons of blood. The blood in me says that my thoughts are exquisitely Talmudic, and it would be racist for you to claim that a Gentile can be as exquisitely Talmudic as I am. He left. Don't pay any attention, Belbo said. We have this argument almost every day. The fact is, Dio Talevi is a devotee of the Kabbalah. But there were also Christian Kabbalists. Anyway, if Dio Talevi wants to be Jewish, why should I object? Why, indeed, we're all liberals here. So we are. He lit a cigarette. I remembered why I had come. You mentioned the manuscript about the Templars, I said. That's right. Let's see. It was in a fake leather folder. He tried to pick a manuscript out of the middle of a pile without disturbing the others. A hazardous operation. Part of the pile fell to the floor. Now Belbo was holding the fake leather folder. I looked at the table of contents and the introduction. It deals with the arrest of the Templars, I said. In 1307, Philip the Fair decided to arrest all the Templars in France. There's a legend that two days before Philip issued the arrest warrant, an ox-drawn haywain left the enclave of the Temple in Paris for an unknown destination. They say that hidden in the wain was a group of knights led by one Aumont. These knights supposedly escaped, took refuge in Scotland, and joined a Masonic lodge in Kilwinning. According to the legend, they became part of the Society of Freemasons, who served as guardians of the secrets of the Temple of Solomon. Ah, here we are, I thought so. 
This writer too claims that the origins of masonry lie in the Templars' escape to Scotland, a story that's been rehashed for a couple of centuries with no foundation to it. I can give you at least fifty pamphlets that tell the same tale, each cribbed from the other. Here, listen to this. Just a page picked at random. The proof of the Scottish expedition lies in the fact that even today, six hundred and fifty years later, there still exist in the world secret orders that hark back to the temple militia. How else is one to explain the continuity of this heritage? You see what I mean? How can the Marquis de Carabas not exist when Puss in Boots says he's in the Marquis's service? All right, Belbo said. I'll throw it out. But this Templar business interests me. For once I have an expert handy, and I don't want to let him get away. Why is there all this talk about the Templars and nothing about the Knights of Malta? No, don't tell me now. It's late. Diotalevi and I have to go to dinner with Signor Garamond in a little while. We should be through by about ten-thirty. I'll try to persuade Diotalevi to drop by Pilades. He goes to bed early and usually doesn't drink. Will you be there? Where else? I belong to a lost generation and am comfortable only in the company of others who are lost and lonely.